Take it away, Derek. What's your question? Why do you guys talk about comics so much? Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? 18 years. <laughs> Toothbrush is still fresh. <laughs> Did they have sex? Because, I mean, she Hulk, you know. Damn it, Tony. We went an entire episode without mentioning Maggot, and then you ruined it. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read him? Batman's got his little fishbowl on his head, but <laughs> Superman doesn't. Cyclops was right. Except when he was wrong. Master Bruce, you are calm. I'm going to silently judge all of you. Shut up, beast. <laughs> Shut up. Like, I've read it so many times, you know, it pretty much just crumbled in my hands. Come on, old chum. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? See, I didn't hate Hellcat until you made me read this miniseries. It was just a joke, but you made it real, Justin. No. You made it real. I, I prefer my Dazzler singing, like, Creedence Clearwater Revival songs at Australian bars. Titty discs. And... <laughs> That's what to be known as from now on. Like, I'm going to go into the Marvel Wikipedia and edit that. Whatever it is. <laughs> the get better than that. Comic books. Motherfucker, do you read them? Hey guys, welcome back to another spooktacular episode of <laughs> Comics, Motherfucker, Do You Read Them? Hey, what's up guys? This is Derek, Derek WC. I'm going to be one of your hosts tonight. And to conclude what I've been jokingly calling our Fanholes Fright Fest 2 Electric Boogaloo Saga here on the Fanholes Podcast Network, we've got a very special guest tonight to discuss the spawn of Frankenstein from DC Comics. We've got Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Aquaman Shrine, Ace Kilroy, 13th Dimension, creator, editor of Hey Kids Comics, True Life Tales from the Spinner Rack, which in no small part inspired this show and our own stories from the Spinner Rack. Welcome to Comics, motherfucker. Do you read them, Rob? <laughs> Kaluda, good. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is very, very awesome. I, I was trying to dream up a reason to invite you on the show. And I guess for me, like I sort of stumbled into this series of backup strips when I was working on my Super Friends segment of History of Comics on Film because one of the episodes dealt with Frankenstein. So I got right, really... Right. I got really, really focused on, like, wh you know, where are all the instances of Frankenstein and the DC Universe and everything. And so that's where I kind of stumbled into this, and I, I just thought it was, uh, you know, true gems of, of backup stories. So I wanted to definitely have you on and, and talk about this. And this, of course, you know, fits in with the whole Halloween theme and everything, because it is the spawn of Frankenstein. So... Yeah, so I, I think what we're going to do is, this was, a Spawn of Frankenstein was a series of backup strips in the comic book The Phantom Stranger, and the backups ran from issues 23 to 30, and then issue, I think it's, what is it, it's 26, I think, where it actually has The Phantom Stranger, it, it actually dovetails into the the headliner of the book, which is, you know, The Phantom Stranger proper and everything. So... I'm going to synopsize probably like the first couple issues like one by one and we'll talk about what we think of the issues, the backup strips and, and the stories. And then I think for the, the last ones, like 27 to 30, they're actually done by a slightly different creative team and, and the story's kind of, it, it's kind of one story. It kind of flows all together. So I'm just going to kind of read the synopsis for that all at once and, and we'll kind of wrap up with that. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. 
torch their hair and stand for truth and justice and see on land and air firestorm and aquaman they make a super fair the fire and water podcast celebrating aquaman king of the seven seas and firestorm the nuclear man available weekly on aquaman trine firestorm van and on itunes and stitcher I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, here to talk about Firestorm. Along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly, here to talk about some guy that talks to fish. Really? You're going to pull this crap during the promo? Bad enough, I have to put up with your shenanigans every week, but... But just to get started, the first comic book is The Phantom Stranger, issue number 23, and this had an on-sale date of November 7th, 1972, and it was written by Marv Wolfman, and as Rob has already kind of mentioned, the artist <laughs> was Mike Kaluta, which, you know, is, is wonderful art. And so these were like, you know, six to eight page, you know, 11 page, like, you know, there, there, there were various page numbers, but they were all kind of backup strips. And this one, ostensibly, I guess, is titled The Spawn of Frankenstein, because there's really no other title. And the synopsis is as follows. When Victor Adams secures the frozen monster in the Arctic, he brings his discovery back to his university in Maine. The faculty want no part in any experiments to raise the dead and demand Victor refrain from such experiments. Victor Adams, much like Victor Von Doom, decides he doesn't need their stupid school anyhow and quits his job at the university. His wife, Rachel, contacts the only friend she thinks can help Victor, Dr. Terry Thirteen, and his wife Marie. Victor, determined to resurrect the creature, uses lasers rather than the electricity in his remote laboratory in an old rundown manor. Rachel, Marie, and Dr. Thirteen arrive at the manor, but since none of them have ever been invited to the grounds, they split up to search for Victor and his laboratory. Since the lasers are not generating enough power to resurrect the creature, lightning is harnessed from the storm going on outside. However, that power proves to be too much and overloads the laser, resulting in a backlash that kills Victor Adams. The creature rises as Victor's dead body slumps over the still-firing laser cannon, directly hitting the first to find the lab, Dr. Thirteen's wife, Marie. Her scream not only draws the attention of her husband, but the creature, who destroys the laser cannon. Dr. Thirteen, of course, jumping to conclusions, attacks the creature as the roof begins to collapse from the erratic laser fire. Rachel begins to see the creature's true intentions as he raises a girder aloft to hold the collapsing ceiling so Terry and her can flee with a comatose Marie. Dr. Thirteen goes all Jack McGee, swearing to track down the creature and destroy him while the monster digs himself out of the rubble of the manor and goes off to hide in the cold night. And that is the, the first Spawn of Frankenstein backup strip. So I, I, I guess maybe to start off, maybe to break the ice, I, I was kind of curious, like, you you were reading, were you reading Phantom Stranger as it came out at this point, or were these back issues that you bought? Like, how did you sort of stumble upon these comic books? Yeah, these were back issues. This was, a, I was alive when these were published, but I was a, a wee teeny little toddler, so yeah, this was before my time. Yeah, I always liked the Phantom Stranger, he's always been one of my favorite characters. So when I first discovered that he had, he had his own comic book, I was naturally attracted to picking those up when I could. So I had no idea that the strip was even in here. And then I read it, and I was like, oh, this was this was really terrific. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Michael Kaluta. 
I think he's just a great artist. He didn't really get to do a ton of comics work because apparently he was pretty slow. So they gave him, you know, covers or one-offs here and there. And of course, this was a good strip for him because the horror content sort of fits his style, but it was also only seven or eight pages. So he could fit those in. I just thought this was great. I love the opening. I love, you, you mentioned that the title of the story is ostensibly the Spawn of, Spawn of Frankenstein. I like that it's, you know, a dialogue. It's a piece of dialogue. The guy is saying, there's my treasure preserved in this coffin of ice. The Spawn of Frankenstein. It, it has, this strip has to me like influences of both the universal horror movies and the Hammer Frankenstein. Mm, it has okay. that combo. And that's what I really like. I, and I like that it's a sequel to the sort of Frankenstein story. It's not, you know, it's not a retelling of like a 30s version or an 80s. This is, you know, set in this, you know, modern day. I just think this is great. I And this is, you know, the idea like that they would put this much effort. I mean, Warf Wolfman and Mike Kaluta doing this backup. Those are some heavy hitters. You know, I know these guys were early in their career, but they went on to both, you know, pretty amazing artistic comic book careers. And just to have them doing this little strip is sort of amazing. And so I said, I love Kaluta stuff. It's moody and weird, but also has like a classic illustrative, you know, kind of pulp style to it. And I love the design of the Spawn of Frankenstein. He looks like Iggy Pop, which I just love. I really do love the art from Mike Kaluta. I think that's what really, really caught my eye when I, I kind of stumbled upon these. And like, I, I think it's because I, I, we've discussed this before on your show on, on Film and Water, but I, I think it's because it reminds me kind of of that, that Bernie Wrightson feel. And, and mm -hmm. like when I was looking up like some of the stuff he did, then I, I was like, well, that kind of makes sense because it looks like he inked writes in on issue number nine of the Swamp Thing run. So I was like, oh, well, I, I see why it, it has like that sense of familiarity to me, but it's something I've never sort of seen before. And also, I guess what you were saying is is how it kind of reminded you of a combination between like the, the Universal and Hammer. Like for me, it kind of reminded me of the, the Frankensteins that I'd be exposed to after the Universal monster version of Frankenstein like he's not quite the bolt-on Frankenstein you know he's kind of got the long stringy hair and it reminded me a lot of like the illustrated Bernie Wrights in Frankenstein or even mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know something more modern which you may or may not have seen but like the the version of Frankenstein they have in Penny Dreadful is, is similar to this version where oh, you know, okay. he, he's not he's not a string bean but he, he is more of this kind of hodgepodge you know piece together guy and he's got the long hair and and that kind of of, you know aesthetic and and I, I I can never figure out it must have been a classics illustrated I read when I was a kid but I have this distinct memory of a version of Frankenstein similar to this but like you know at the end of the novel where he's like you know in in the ice or whatever and and on the the ship and stuff like that and and I remember some kind of classics illustrated type book that reflected that kind of visual where I, I think it was the first time I ever kind of went, oh, weird, like Frankenstein has long hair. Like, I guess it just never, you know, I think as a young kid, just being exposed to the universal guy, you know, I, I had never thought of Frankenstein as anybody else but Boris Karloff. And, and that was one of the first times where it sort of expanded my my vision of, of what Frankenstein or, or the, the monster, the creature could be and everything. Yeah, these guys that were coming in all at the same time, Bernie Wrightson and Kaluta and Jay Jones, Howard Chaikin, they were, I mean, they were certainly fans of Kirby and Ditko and all the guys that were really the, the building blocks, but 
they were less I think they were less influenced by them than they were by more classic illustrators, mm. more, you know, book illustrators and things like that. And I think they brought that kind of illustrative sensibility to their work. And they, as you mentioned, Kaluta inked writes on some things and then they worked on like they were all kind of working on each other's stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I mean, like, you know, everybody knows that the, the cover model for House of Secrets number 92, the first Swamp Thing story Weezy. is Louise Jones yeah. is Wheezy, you know. Yeah. So it's like they were all they were all hanging out. They're all living together. And like I said, I just think this it gives this even though this strip takes place in the DC universe because you've got Doctor 13 in it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't really feel like it does, which I kind of like. It's like it's its own little separate pocket of the DCU, which is this weird horror thing. Plus, Michael Kaluta just drew the most beautiful women, I think. I mean, like they had this kind of like flappers kind of look. They all look like they come from the 1920s. Like he, he would. I would imagine like the best gig for him would be like the illustrated Great Gatsby or something. He would yeah, be like a great yeah. guy for that. But I mean, it's just to me the strip is just so distinctive, and the fact again that it's sort of just buried in the back of this sort of nondescript Phantom Stranger comic is makes it just feel like a, like a hidden gem. Yeah, Ra- Rachel is is smoldering. I mean, most yeah. times that that Mike Kaluta pencils her you know so so she's very very gorgeous so i i definitely agree with that that he really has an interesting handle on women but not not in a sense that like that i i guess that that's the best way i could describe it that it's not it's not an obvious kind of sexuality or beauty right. or whatever but but it, it does have that kind of smoldering feel where you you just look at somebody and it's almost like they're they're in a a horror noir type vision you know so that's that's always kind of cool i and I, I thought it was cool that that dr 13 is i guess he's kind of the, the passing the torch guy you know because i guess what the previous backup strips were his and yeah. now it's like he's he's sort of part of this storyline but but really the the star is is the spawn of frankenstein and everything yeah and I, I the only other thing i have as far as a note for this first part was i i was kind of amazed at how much i thought this reminded me of kenneth johnson's incredible hulk like because because it you you say it's set in modern times but for modern times for this comic was you know the the you know early 70s pretty much and i i just felt like it had that same vibe to it like not so much the the scientific well i mean kind of you know you've got you've got victor adams playing kind of the the Dr. Banner-ish role, you know, and then the creature playing kind of the Hulk role and everything. Yeah. And, yep. and then, you know, Dr. 13 is basically, you know, like I kind of alluded to before, I mean, he's basically, you know, Jack McGeeing it, kind of going like, I'll have <laughs> right. your head, creature, and, and I'm going right. to I'm gonna hunt you down every, you know, eight-page installment or episode, you know, following type thing. Yeah, the final, the final piece of narration, which is the Cherish That Darkness Monster, for tonight it is your only friend. You can just hear the dun 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 dun. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. totally, yeah. The Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new, hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. Available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. 
Alright, so we'll, we'll jump into issue 24, which was on sale January 4th, 1973. Again, Marv Wolfman was the writer and Mike Kaluta was the artist. And this is still, I guess, ostensibly Spawn of Frankenstein continued. At the funeral of Victor Adams, after a brief protest, Dr. 13 agrees to let Rachel accompany him in his quest to destroy the creature they believe is responsible for the murder of their friend and lover. The creature skulks from the trees and shrubbery and takes note that like his former creator, Victor Frankenstein, two more will now attempt to hunt him down in the present day. Once the mourners have started to leave, some opportunistic gravediggers named Gink and Pete plan to dig up Adam's coffin to steal the gold handles and other accoutrements, such as his gold cufflinks. Although the creature hates Adams for returning him to a life of torment, he cannot allow the desecration of his grave and plans to stop the gravediggers turned grave robbers. The creature next breaks into a clothing store and ends up crippling some policemen who attempt to stop his five-fingered shopping spree. When the clock strikes midnight, the grave robbers have already dug up the coffin. The creature sucker punches Pete from behind to the horror of Gink. Gink attacks the creature with a switchblade, but the creature bites into the blade hand and chucks the both of them into the freshly dug grave. With the corpse of Victor Adams already removed from sacred ground, we end with the creature contemplating if he could return the favor of resurrection to the one who resurrected him. And that's the end of that backup from Phantom Stranger 24. I love the opening page of this. Mm. Uh, first of all, I, I love it, it, the fact that you've, it, it takes place during the day, yeah. which is pretty unusual kind of a, as a setting for a horror movie. I have to wonder if either Wolfman or Kaluta weren't inspired by Night of the Living Dead with that okay. opening sequence. Okay, yeah, yeah. Just, to me, this is just the read. We're coming to get you, Barbara. It just yeah. has that feel to it. And I love the bottom panel of just the close-up of the eyes of the spawn of Frank's with no dialogue. Yeah. Just him looking. I think it's terrific. I love the colors, like the purple lettering is kind of strange. The, the, the kind of funny grave digger characters are, are cool. The sequence where all the dialogue on page four of the story is done as sort of sound effects, as opposed to word balloons where mm -hmm. he's like, ah, my wrist, Jackson, get out of the way. Like that's, I love that. Like it just, this just doesn't feel like anything else DC is doing at the moment, you know? And then you got page five, the fight between Spawn of Frankenstein and the, the one gravedigger, and there's no dialogue. It just, again, it just has such a different vibe to it. And then the end with the guy falling in the his body in the open grave. It's just great. And then, I love, I don't know if you are, are you looking at the original comics, or is this, do you have, are these on Comicsology somewhere? No, I'm just looking at, like, scans and stuff. Okay, because so. I love on the bottom of page, the last page of the story, where it's, you've got this moody Frankenstein story, and then there's an ad for the Trigger Twins, which is just like the most yeah, in yeah. incongruous plug possible. Like, there's literally no crossover audience between Spawn of Frankenstein and the Trigger Twins. <laughs> That's funny. I, I was wondering what your take on that, because you brought up the scene with just the sound effects and everything, and basically he's he's going to get some clothes. And so, like, I, I, I had a couple kind of things that I questioned while I was reading it, because... I was wondering, like, what what do you think happens to those cops? Like, do you think he just really, really hurts them really, really bad? Or do you think that he actually kills them? I think he kills them. Okay. I think by the, by the fact that they... I mean, I'm just guessing, but I'm the betting that... The fact that, that eventually that, the, the noise stops, right? 
Yeah, I mean, they could be unconscious, but I'm betting that he, Spawn doesn't really know his own strength, so I'm betting he's, like, snapping some necks here. It, it kind of reminded me of how, like, there was that big kind of outcry on, on the interwebs not too long ago where, you know, people were questioning the end of the killing joke type thing where it's mm-hmm. like, did Batman snap his neck? Did they just kind of have a laugh and then stop? You know, like that kind of right. thing. So, like, to me, I was like, I, I felt like, oh, this is kind of open to interpretation. I suppose if you if you just want... Because, you know, it, it's interesting because those those, you know, cops don't seem like bad guys. So if you wanted them to kind of just get really banged up and maybe they... You know, they go to the hospital the next day and everything's cool. It could be like that because you don't know. But again, if you want it to be that the creature doesn't know his own strength and 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 sort of, you know, clearly he has no qualms about killing the the grave diggers either. You know, right. so so it's not like it's out of the realm of probability and everything. And and the other thing, the reason why I kind of hope that the cops aren't dead was because I was like, is it really worth it? You you got a purple cape and a Zorro hat? Like, is that really... <laughs> I was like, is that really going to fool anybody? Like, what was... what You know, like, I, I was thinking, like, he'd have, like, a, you know, how Ben Grimm always dresses up in, like, a, a fedora a and a coat, trench coat, yeah. and, and then nobody knows who he is. Like, something to really disguise you. But it seems like, after all that trouble, it's like the gravediggers kind of knock off the, the Zorro hat and then he's just left with this kind of tattered cape. And I was like, I I feel like that's not worth the lives of two people. No. <laughs> no. Oh, so. Spawner Frankenstein, I didn't recognize yeah. you in your yeah. cloak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, you totally fooled me with that, that cloak up against your nose, like Bella Lugosi style or whatever. You know? He puts glasses on there, like, it must be um, a Daily Planet <laughs> reporter or a kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, he again, he's kind of our hero, really, and yet, you know they're willing to let him at the very least really injure people and maybe mm, kill people mm. I, I it's this is like a strip where they knew it wasn't going to run forever although we can get into the whole creative change actually we will get into the creative change shortly but it feels like wolfman was writing it almost as like a limited series you know mm, he okay. knew yeah, yeah. this is only going to run x number of issues we're going to culminate it with the phantom stranger team up and then we're done and so therefore i don't have to worry about stretching this out or having anybody being terribly sympathetic one way or the other yeah, that makes sense. It's a small world it's a small world. Great comics come in all shapes and sizes. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's Digest Cast, a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s. Hosted by the Fire and Water Podcast team of Robin Shag, and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests. It's Digest Cast, because big things come in small packages. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. So just moving on, we're going to go to Phantom Stranger, issue number 25. Its on-sale date was March 8th, 1973. Again, the creative team is still Marv Wolfman and Mike Kaluta. We are still dealing with the whole ostensibly Spawn of Frankenstein title. Rachel, dressed in a slinky black morning dress, sits on a bed of grass by Victor Adams' gravestone at the Inwood Cemetery. She swears on the devil himself to find her dead lover's killer and destroy him. Out of nowhere, the strangely garbed Harry Mammon arrives to deliver Rachel to his master and smacks her unconscious. He also tosses her red VW bug into the sea below a local cliffside. 
We now see the creature with Victor Adams' corpse, where we left off from last issue. The creature intends to resurrect Adams as some sort of payback for bringing him back to his tormented existence. The creature seeks shelter in the same tower that Mammon has already brought Rachel to. Rachel awakes to find herself strapped to a raised crucifix and beneath a pentagram on the floor. Mammon's master, a broken-down, old, bald man named Mordecai, plans to use Rachel as a sacrifice to Satan. When Rachel invoked the name of the devil, this drew Mammon to her at the cemetery. The creature, having arrived at the tower, overhears the incantations of Mammon and attacks him. However, Mammon manages to lay the creature out with his brute strength. Mordecai orders Rachel be switched out with the creature, taking her place. But the spawn of Frankenstein gets his Round of Two Power, or Second Wind, and busts free of the crucifix trap. Mammon attempts to offer himself up as a sacrifice for his master, but with the ceremony spoiled, he is too late, and both master and servant die in a blaze of fire, leaving Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru-style corpses. The creature places the unconscious Rachel Adams in a love seat. When Rachel finally awakens, she screams when she sees her husband's corpse alongside her on the floor. Dun-dun-dun! And that's that's how that backup ends. Uh, I'm uh, I'm amazed at the level of cheesecake that Kaluta mm. worked into this one. I mean, the opening panel. I'm like, I feel like it's only because this strip is just not famous that if this had been discovered by like a generation of goth girls, like mm. this this panel would be the thing, man. This would be the, the T-shirt of this slinky black dressed woman leaning up against a grave. It's got everything that if you're into like goth stuff, you would like. It's it's, it's funny. I, I guess I didn't I didn't make the the goth connection myself, but I just thought she she was super sensual. Even you know it, it's funny because it's got that to me. It has a strong contrast. It's kind of like you know Janet Lee in Psycho. You know where it's like obviously getting knifed to death in the shower is not a cool thing, but Janet Lee is this beautiful woman. Do you know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like it's like you you feel that disparity where you're like, "Oh, she's at a grave site." Like that's supposed to be kind of scary and creepy and and you know alludes to, you know, the supernatural and things like that in this context. But yet you've got this kind of almost, you know, like you said, I guess gothy Betty Page Mm-hmm. sensual lady you know kind of in in the the graveyard and and you're you're obviously you know to me i was like oh well i'm very attracted to rachel adams like she, yeah. she looks oh, awesome yeah. Yeah, yeah and every every panel that she's in her dress is slit like up to her the top of her thought you know i mean kaluta's really working it hard and it's again this is got this whole thing is like a very perils of pauline kind of feel to it again they're they're going back to something really old older than the hammer films older than even the universal horror i would say in some way this is this feels like a lovecraftian kind of thing i mean wow, yeah, i also yeah. I, I also love the way again kaluta draws the spawn of frankenstein on panel page two the bottom panel where he's leaned over like that's just a very atypical i mean he is a, he is they've given him a cape He's a superhero, basically. In yeah, strip, yeah, yeah. But he doesn't pose like a superhero. He's all weird and bent over, and and it just has a just very strange. And then that whole full page where the Satanist is talking. I mean, it's just really. It, this feels like pre-code horror. 
you know, where it's yeah, before, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, before the the, the, the the Hayes Code got in and said, you can't do this stuff in movies. It feels like this kind of obsession with pentagrams and Satanism and all this stuff. And, and this is the story where the Frankenstein really does become the hero because now we have another guy to root against even more than the monster. We've got this Satanist guy who wants to do all this horrible stuff. So it's it's just like this weird mixture of all these crazy things. And then the final page, you've got the smoking corpse just sitting there in the foreground as Frankenstein carts Rachel away. Yeah. And he's and, and he's also very loquacious here. All of a sudden he's talking quite a bit where he's, you know, soon you shall awaken in the time to see your husband back from the other world. It's 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 Wolfman I feel like he's just grabbing every influence he's he had he can get his hands on for this strip. Yeah, but when when you kinda of say he, he, he became loquacious like it that that's another thing that reminds me a lot of the version of frankenstein from penny dreadful you know that somebody who was very eloquent with their language and specific and everything and then it's it, it's weird like i i keep wondering like now that i've i've been you know on this kick where i've, I've read things like tomb of dracula and this and you know i was kind of like it seems like that whole satanist stuff you know even you know stuff i used to like when i was a kid like you know johnny blaze's ghostwriter like i'm like i guess satanism was like the hip thing you know in the 70s or something it feels like it because it's like there there's all these these references to it i mean you know sometimes it's with the antagonist but sometimes you sit there and wonder about you know it's like why why does johnny blaze and you know know why does he have satan books like just lying around and stuff like that you know so so it's like that that guy mordecai you know he seems like he's like he's like a cross between like dr savannah and anton arcane and then you throw in all that kind of tomb of dracula you know satan worship stuff and and you've got this kind of creepy villain and everything but i i did kind of think mammon seemed out of place like i i felt like he would be served better like hanging out in the hyborian age like he should fight with conan or something you know because he yeah, seems like this big like you know man brute and he's kind of hairy and he, he just he he seemed like something from another time or age to me uh, set among all this kind of like like we've been saying kind of 70s noir goth you know horror stuff where it's like you but you feel like in 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 amongst all this horror stuff is this kind of throwback to kind of almost a a barbarian kind of fantasy character you know which is that 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 sort of was how i sort of viewed mammon i guess i could see that and the the the, the i can sort of hear the voice of the 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 satanist guy i mean to me he sounds like the little guy that you hear on the conan power record oh he's okay got that, yeah, you know yeah. he's like hello bob Allen. Yeah, he's got that yeah. kind of, you know he's almost like peter laurie in some weird way what makes you think i'm ever going to reach that slave block you shriveled little worm well there's certainly no way you can escape me barbarian the other end of the chain that binds you is shackled to my wrist accept it my friend you're my prisoner but since this chain indeed has two ends little worm who is to say which of us is really the prisoner here yeah it's just it's 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 cool again i reading these over again for for this recording it was so much fun because these are just they're just so weird and it's in some weird way i could i could picture these being printed in black and white with all the dialogue removed and then all the like it done in text mm -hmm. you know i could see these as spot illustrations in some in some way it has that 
again, has that feel to me. If anybody ever wanted to do that, which would be, you know, impossible because it would be a ton of work. But it just, it it, it feels like an old-timey Frankenstein Lovecraft. Again, I'm using that term again, Lovecraftian story to me. Until we get to the next segment, of course, when the DC Universe comes barging in. Calabac, Tassad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Etrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I guess we should use that as a segue to talk about Phantom Stranger 26. And this is this is the moment where, you know, the the backup, you know, unlike unlike the the headlining band meets the you know, the <laughs> opening act, pretty much, right? Like, so, you've got Phantom Stranger 26, its on-sale date is May 8th, 1973, and in this case, we've got the writer is Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, and then the art is by the great Jim Aparo, and, like, you know what I want to talk about before I even get into the synopsis with you is, like, this cover, I had to look it up because I, I wasn't sure, but this cover predates Swamp Thing number 7 by three months, and I was just like, I was struck by, like, I, I looked at it and it, it just looked so familiar to me, even though it was something that, you know, I was not exposed to in my childhood or anything. And I realized, like, what it really, really reminded me is that cover of Swamp Thing number seven, where you've got Swamp Thing hanging out the windowsill right. and, like, Batman, Batman yeah. swinging yep. below him in the cityscape and everything. And, and this is, you know, very similar, except for it's almost kind of inverted, where you've got the spawn of Frankenstein kind of hanging from you know, some kind of balcony structure, and then to his side is, you know, the the wife of Dr. 13, you know, and I was just kind of like, well, that's, you know, that that's kind of what I saw it as. I, I don't know if that's anything that ever occurred to you, or, or if you have any thoughts on that. Not, the, no, it never occurred to me, but now that you've pointed it out, they are the mirror images of one another. Yeah, it's yeah. It's kind of amazing, and which, which makes me think one of them saw the other one. And and just like oh that's a great layout I'll just use that you know yeah, that kind of yeah, thing yeah uh, I love that there's no trade dress on this other mm. than the logo where it just says Phantom Stranger meets Spawn but I love there's no story blurb nothing it's just this great drawing and you know it's funny the Phantom Stranger is the star of the book and yet he's not even technically on the cover which I think is is great the Spawn of Frankenstein leaning out the window and it, it, it's a beautiful drawing I love the colors the co- again atypical colors i think it's it's beautiful i just love it i just absolutely love it phantom stranger this had better be important very i'm alarmed at the way you're conducting this investigation go haunt a house i'm busy batman i'm here to offer you an insight into your parents demise what do you know most things 
Leaving the flaming tower of now-dead Satanist Mordecai, the creature becomes possessed by two demons who have appeared on this world as an after-effect of the failed spell from last issue. Meanwhile, Doctor Thirteen, three issues later, is still vowing vengeance to his comatose wife, Maria, but hasn't actually got off his duff to do much about it just yet. He is visited by the Phantom Stranger to warn Thirteen of coming danger. At the same time, the creature bursts into the hospital to steal Victor Adams' laser device and also kidnap Marie Thirteen's body. The stranger is backhanded when he attempts to stop the creature, and the demonic influence causes the creature to throw Dr. Thirteen out of a window. Taking Marie and the device back to Adams' home, the demons try to make the creature use the weapon to kill Rachel Adams, but he resists their influence when it comes to Rachel. Finding the creature's will to be too strong for them, the two demons Flagermot and Pornipus possess the bodies of Marie Thirteen and Victor Adams. They then use their magic powers to attack the creature by bringing suits of empty armor to life. Although the creature defeats the armored attackers, the demons burn out the floor beneath the creature and leave him buried underground and shackled in chains. The creature's great strength breaks free of the chains, and he learns that any physical violence inflicted on the possessed bodies only affects the demons rather than the hosts. Meanwhile, Doctor Thirteen and the Phantom Stranger are racing to Adams' home. They arrive just as the creature has thrown the possessed Marie out the window. Although Doctor Thirteen catches his wife possessed by Flaggerbot, she attacks, dropping a chandelier from the ceiling. The Stranger saves Doctor Thirteen, who then confronts the creature. However, there is little time for rivalry, as the demons invoke some kind of blast from the moon to destroy the tower and those within. After our protagonists flee and escape the blast that destroys the structure, the demons again try to use the power of the moon to destroy the Phantom Stranger. Only this time, he reflects the blast back on the demons from his medallion, killing them instead. Doctor Thirteen thanks the Stranger for saving Marie, but soon finds that he is alone as both the Phantom Stranger and the Spawn of Frankenstein have disappeared in the aftermath of the battle. And that is the big mega team-up between Phantom Stranger and the Spawn of Frankenstein. I, I, I This I kind of liked a lot too because I, I guess I grew up reading you know Jim Aparo Batman stuff, so this was super familiar to me and I, I think is great. Yeah, well, I'm certainly sorry to see Kaluta go. I'm certainly never going to complain about Jim Aparo. He's my single favorite comic book artist of all time. And he was great at horror and action. And this is both of those things. I love the portrait. He I did the splash page mm. is great. It looks like a Hammer movie completely. You know, you could just see that as the poster or at least an image that they would have in the trailer. And I like that the he makes the Spawn of Frankenstein a little more brutal. Like a little more, I mean, again, he's more of an action guy. Yeah. On page 15, the big close-up of the Spawn of Frankenstein, where we get a real kind of juicy shot of his face. And he really has quite a thick head of hair, considering he's this desiccated corpse. His hair is very luxurious in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's it's a great conclusion. It's, it's, it's sad because this is really the end of the great run of the Phantom Stranger. Right. Because this, this is right. Aparo's last issue, Ween's last issue. And uh, a whole other team takes over for both both strips. Yeah. So this is really the they kind of went out on a bang here with this 
this great combination. And Doctor 13, he's one of the most annoying characters in all of comics because he's constantly telling people what the audience knows is not true. You know, he's like, there is no, there are no, there is no supernatural. There are no monsters. It's all fakery. And you're like, you know, he's Walter, he's Walter Peck yeah. from the Ghostbusters. Yeah, you know? he's, he's Walter Peck to the Phantom Strangers Ghostbusters. You know, totally, so you're, totally. every time he shows up, you're just really bored. So it's, it's interesting that they chose to end it this way is to kind of wrap it after the look of the previous installment and then to end it in this kind of more comic booky way is, is interesting. I would have loved to have seen how Kaluta and Wolfman would have ended it solo, but this is really pretty good. And it's, you know, it's a longer form spawn of Frankenstein story. It's probably, geez, it's probably the longest spawn of Frankenstein story DC's yeah. ever published. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think yeah. he ever got any more pages than this. Yeah. What, I mean, I know you're a, a big fan of the Phantom Stranger. Like, w do you have any take on how he is presented with the Spawn of Frankenstein? Like, you know how sometimes people kind of think of, you know, sometimes people that guest star in other books, you know, maybe they don't get their, their due justice or, or you know, the maybe the star of one book outshines the other. Like, how did you feel about the interplay between the Phantom Stranger and the Spawn of Frankenstein? He definitely gets shunted aside a little in this story, just because Spawn of Frankenstein just is so much more going to be proactive. He's grabbing people and throwing mm. them around and stuff. But that's that was kind of the setup of, of Phantom Stranger in a lot of ways. So I, it didn't bother me at all. He's kind of he gets involved. He he's on the periphery a little bit here and there. Of course, here he's a little more directly involved. But you know, when he guest appeared in the JLA, he would show up for a page or two, do something, and then right. disappear. He's a lot more active in these Wien Apero stories, but even even still, they're kind of a little more horror slash human interest stories with the Phantom Stranger as opposed to him. He's not Superman, you know, right. where he's in every right. page and he's doing all these things. So it doesn't bother me at all. That That's what was kind of interesting to me, because I, I'm not super well read on the Phantom Stranger. And I, I'm, I'm guessing kind of like maybe Michael Bailey or something like I, I kind of know him best from you know, legends kind of popping in and being like, and I need you and you are gone, you know, and they poof in and out and, right. you know, teleport people around and things like that. And so like, it, it, even what you're describing to me as being, you know, kind of like, he's almost a, a Greek chorus to some kind of, you know, horror, humor and drama interest story. You know, it, it was a little shocking to me that, you know, like, the the spawn of frankenstein like really manhandles the the phantom stranger because i i can't remember a time where you know that that's what struck me in in my synopsis where i was like oh he he really bitch slapped the hell out of the phantom stranger you know, <laughs> yeah. when, he, when he backhands him and everything and i i was like i can't remember a time you know i mean it, it could just be my poor memory or whatever maybe i don't remember you know eclipso doing something like that to the phantom stranger or whatever but i i just don't remember a time when when he got you know, smacked around like that. Like, I always think of him as such a ethereal, you know, almost akin to guys like, you know, Dr. Fate and the Spectre mm -hmm. and, and guys like that. And it's not often that they get kind of manhandled and everything. So I, I was I was sort of impressed with the Spawn of Frankenstein, but maybe at the expense of, of the Phantom Stranger, I suppose. Yeah, a little bit. A little, there's no doubt about that. I mean, again, it's just the, the, the Phantom Stranger, he's... I mean, it's. It, I think it was a little hard to write him because he can do whatever you need him to do. Yeah, yeah. And that always is a cheat. It always loses a little bit of drama if you, you know, oh, I can travel through time or I can turn into a giant snake or I can do, do whatever. But here, the Phantom the um, Spawn of Frankenstein is just so much a physical character. I mean, that's basically all he could do is just 
break things. Yeah. And so they're a little bit of a of a mix mismatch. But yeah, the the spawn doesn't you know doesn't take a lot of crap from the Phantom Stranger. <laughs> kind of like what you're saying, you know, at the end, it's like his medallion reflects moonbeams. So like he is yeah. literally the the Deus Ex Machina that kind of fixes everything up nice and tidy at the end and everything. Yep. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. So it, this is the part where I, I guess I, I don't know if I'm burying the lead, but my enthusiasm starts to wane with these backup strips, which is why I sort of compressed the synopsis from 27 to 30, which basically I guess these these were on sale from July to about January. So it, it kind of starts in 73 and, and finishes up in the early 1974. And these actually, ironically, all have titles. The Terror and the Compassion, Night of the Snake God, The Snake God Revealed, and Turnabout are the titles of all the various stories. And so this is basically the kind of long and short of these last backups. The creature awakens from a dream to find a young girl about to be accosted by her date. The creature knocks out the man as the shocked flower child faints. While carrying the fainted girl to safety, the man revives and tries to run down the creature in his car. However, the monster's strength and durability only ends up wrecking the car, setting the engine on fire and knocking the man out yet again. The creature, not wanting to be responsible for any more death than he already is responsible for, removes the man from the car before it explodes. In the meantime, the girl stumbles onto a cult who wishes to use her as a sacrifice in one of their black masses. The creature hears the cries of the girl, surrounded by flames, and heads to save her. The issue concludes with the man who the creature saved from the car explosion confronting the creature as the girl is about to be knifed in the chest by the cult leader. The creature disarms the man and saves the woman before she can be sacrificed by the cult. However, in fleeing, the limbering monster accidentally kills her when his haste causes the girl's neck to break when her head strikes a tree. Filled with great remorse, the creature takes her to the local town, where she is identified as Betty Ann. The town blames the monster for Betty Ann's death, and the man she was with also corroborates that notion. Meanwhile, the cult leader witnessing the spectacle tells his followers that they have succeeded in spawning a demon. The townspeople try to run the creature out of town and dogpile him in an attack with makeshift clubs, brooms, pitchforks, and hammers. Being persecuted by the townspeople, the creature is granted sanctuary by the cult leader. As he hides the creature in the basement of an abandoned shack in the woods, the cult leader tells his followers they must perform the Rite of Snakes. The cult leader invites the creature, whom he believes to be his personal demon, to the Rite. 
beautiful bikini-clad women dance and chant around another blonde beauty who is intended to be another satanic sacrifice. The cult leader reveals a snake god is attached to his right hand, who orders the creature to push the girl sacrifice into the snake pit below. When he refuses, the snake woman and cult leader attack him, and the creature plummets into the snake pit himself. While the creature is trapped in the snake pit, the girl's sacrifice scratches the cult leader's face and manages to escape and alert the police. The cultists flee when the police arrive, and the girl and the two cops throw down a line to the creature so he can climb out of the snake pit. Unfortunately, the girl and the two cops believe the creature to also be a member of the Satan cult, so the creature turns a gaggle of snakes onto the policeman. He then punches them out so he can take his leave into the woods, presumably never to be hounded by mankind ever again. The end. So that that kind of wraps up the remaining backup script segments. Now this was, again, a change in the creative team. So in this case, we've got the writer is Steve Skeets, and the artist is Bernard Bailey doing the artwork. What I guess I guess we can get into this, and you may know more about this than I do. But what did you think of the artistic change, and do you know anything about why that took place? I, I don't. I I'm I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a kid reading this comic book, and if you liked what you were getting, and then getting this, mm. it had to just be like, what the hell's happening? Yeah, you know, super, what super is this? jarring change. I mean, I don't think this is bad. I mean, look, I'm a big fan of Steve Skeets. Hmm. I, I get to call him, I've actually get to call him a friend. He was in my book that you mentioned, and he wrote my favorite Aquaman stories. Yeah, yeah, you said um, like the, the, the SAG Aquaman stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's my favorite stuff. But this is such a change that it's really jarring. And Bernard Bailey, who was kind of at the end of his comics career by this point, is... I, I can't tell whether I like this stuff or not. It's so it seems so tonally off from what the subject matter is, but yet it it's got a real funky energy to it that I kind of like. His Frankenstein, I mean, this almost feels like a completely different strip. Yeah, yeah. Just completely like it just happens to be called Spawn of Frankenstein, but it has zero connection to what came before, just a month before. His version of Frankenstein seems to look very much like the Dick Briefer Frankenstein from the 40s, if you've ever seen that comic. Okay. Where it's got this kind of almost humor style where the Frankenstein's nose is so high up his face, it's almost past his eyeballs. And that's what he's got going here. So I have to almost wonder if Bernard Bailey wasn't influenced by that, by that book, because it's just such a, just a strange, strange change of pace. And Steve Skates, by his own admission, wrote heavy. He wrote a lot. And you could see on the very first page of his first story, there's a ton of text going on mm. here. And this, Frank, it's, the, like I said, it's, you've got all these snake gods and all of a sudden there's a lot more kind of humor to it. It, It's weird. I, my memory of this was that these guys only did it for like an issue or two. And it was really kind of the this, this strip just sort of dribbled to a conclusion. But they mm -hmm. actually ran longer than, than Wolfman yeah. and colluded yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they had four and... and... And Kaluta and Wolfman only had three. Like, it's interesting you bring up, like, the, the maybe perhaps 40s influence to it and, and the fact that, you know, the art, I think, maybe the reason why it's so, you know, it's probably unfair to criticize it because of it, but I, I understand what you're saying because I think even reading this as an adult, like, not never mind being a little kid who was enjoying the hell out of the Wolfman 
Kaluta stuff. It's like the the Bernard Bailey art, I think, kind of has a... I, I think it's got like a goal... You know, it's it, he is, like you said, he was an art artist that was kind of, you know, winding down in his career. I mean, probably in his prime, he, he would be considered you know, a golden age artist, right? Yeah, he drew I mean, the for, yeah. Yeah, he you know, and, and it, 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 it seems like that's the, like, you, you sort of, I guess it's one of those things, like, I know some people, their joy probably isn't reading golden age comics or stories, so it's like, it's one of those things maybe you have to be mentally prepared for, and I think what you were given originally was not, golden age so so it's it is kind of like a jarring change and even like i i don't know if this is just my take on things my personal take but i i felt like the early issues really did feel like they were quote-unquote modern that it was taking place in the the you know early 70s but this felt a little I don't know. Like, it seems like the girl is kind of a flower child, but I, I felt like it was. It felt a little more like it could have happened in the '60s to me. Like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. Like, like so, it's almost like it was going backward somehow. And like, I I don't know that it, it's weird because there there's that notion of of you know him accosting her and like you know I I don't know. It just it just seemed it 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 seemed like it was trying to delve into maybe things that were socially relevant in like an eight page backup strip like like early on and and all those things kind of felt weird to me and i guess even what you had mentioned before about the lovecraftian type vibe i mean i guess that kind of comes back when you've got like the the snake guy who you know has like a snake for a hand and stuff like that it's very very weird and and i i guess the 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 thing that probably I thought was the most appealing and you know maybe it's the the you know shag matthews in me or whatever but you know all the all the bikini clad girls reminded me of the there's the bernie wrights and graphic novel spider-man hooky and there's a moment where he gets dumped into kind of like this oasis of of almost you know beautiful princesses type thing you know and they're all dressed in kind of these you know gold and and you know see-through kind of you know, dresses and stuff like that. And that's almost what this reminded me of. Again, kind of maybe drawing from like a Hyborian age type vibe where it's, it's, it's almost, you know, very fantasy oriented and everything in, in terms of the sacrifices or I guess the girls dancing around the, the, you know, one girl who's supposed to be sacrificed. But I, I guess it's, it's, it also has that kind of disenfranchisement and malaise. Cause it's like, you know, the, the spawn of Frankenstein is not, you know, kind of like the Hulk in the early days. He's not praised for the good things he tries to do. In fact, he's he's still viewed by the cops and the girl who he's trying to save is like a monster. You know, so there is that kind of bittersweet end to it where it's like, I was trying to do some nice things, but you guys still treat me like shit. Like, I've had it with you guys. Right. I'm, I'm going off into the forest and I, I don't ever want to see you you know, you lame bunch of humans ever again, which, you know, I, I think everybody at some point can probably relate to that, but it is it is a kind of interesting way for the whole thing to wrap up, where he's just like, I've had it with you people, I'm going away. Yeah, it has a very, you mentioned it doesn't, it the way the, um, even though the Kaluta stuff looks more old-timey, it, it, it definitely, it feels like, okay, this is taking place now. This one, yeah, it does feel out of time. This almost doesn't feel like a DC comic. This mm-hmm. feels like almost something you would have seen like by Archie or Harvey when they tried to do horror and it was like, mm. or, or I could see this in black and white in like Warren 
of the okay. time. That kind of okay. like because it's just it's got weird snake people. I could see this yeah, backup yeah. strip in Vampirella or something okay. like that. It's just that strange energy. And this was it for the Spawn of Frankenstein all the way until the '80s, where somebody used him in an issue of Action Comics of all things. And then he made two appearances in the Young All Stars. Like yeah, that's, huh? that's it's like that's one of those things where much like Earth Two Aquaman, I guess there's an Earth Two Spawn of Frankenstein. Yes, so that that's the only that's the only because I was sitting there thinking about it, like because like I told you, I was doing this big read through of all these comics with Frankenstein and stuff and and so I did stumble upon the comics that you mentioned and everything and like when I read that I was just kind of like thinking to myself can that work and I'm like no it can't because he, he he's buried as you know Mary Shelley's character and then he gets dug up in the 70s so I'm like there's no it's not like he got dug up in between that and had adventures or whatever you know and so like it was it was one of those things where I was like I guess there must be two you know like two different versions and I feel like the only time I ever noticed Spawn of Frankenstein before I read these was the Who's Who entry you right, know so right. that that was that was you know one of those things where I was like oh I kind of remember that Who's Who entry and and that's and then and then seeing you know the Kaluta art was what really kind of got my juices pumping and like you said there's nothing you know there's nothing you know to to fairly criticize in these these you know backup strips and i like like you said i do like steve skeets like it's funny for me like i know i know you like the 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 aquaman run and everything like for me like i i was looking at his body of work and i think for me as a kid the thing that stood out to me the most was i used to get those those spider ham comics off the screen oh yeah sure and and he he definitely wrote those so it was like those are some of the things that he worked on that sort of brought joy to my heart and stuff like that and i was like wow what a departure like spawn of frankenstein done with humanity you know people getting you know conked on the head and, and dying when they hit trees and then like spider ham you know it's like totally totally different kind of vibes and, and, and tones and everything but yet you know it's it's the same guy so so obviously like there's a lot of you know talent there where he can he can you know use his writing talents whether it's like an action piece like Aquaman or kind of this almost you know Lovecraftian horror piece like the Spawn of Frankenstein and then kind of a, a fun like kids kids book like Spider-Ham you know so yeah oh, I, he... I, yeah he wrote uh, Abin Costello comics for Charlton. He could do, yeah, he could do yeah, all yeah. kinds of stuff. Yeah. So he's he's definitely like a jack of all trades. Like he he definitely you know he 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 can do multiple things within his craft. So that's you know that obviously I'm not trying to you know be super critical of this, but I I do see the point where I I prefer the Marv Wolfman and Kaluta strips to the the Skeets and the. Bernard Bailey. Bailey. Bailey strips. Yeah, yeah, and there's a reason why they got, I think they got Kaluta back to do the Who's Who listing. Because, I mm. mean, that's the image everybody Remembers. knows. And just as a, a little piece of trivia, because as I mentioned, the the Phantom Stranger Spawn of Frankenstein team-up is the last, not only is it the last time Spawn of Frankenstein would appear as this, in the sort of form that we know him in, it's the last Lanween Apero issue, which was a very successful run. So this issue that we're talking about, the last one, number 30, features a letters page. And the letters page is the first letters page talking about the new Phantom Stranger direction. Uh-huh. And it is the letters are just ripping DC apart. And there's a letter by Richard Morrissey where he says, as for Spawn of Frankenstein, there's nothing there. Why not just let it rest in peace? <laughs> and then the response yeah, yeah. is the response from the editor is, and that's one of the nicest letters we got. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. 
This is yeah. Twitter, Twitter before Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Every everybody's uh, very uh, comfortable vocalizing some harsh opinions from yeah. the comfortability of the envelope or the the, <laughs> the the interwebs or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's that's too bad. I mean, I, I I wouldn't be that harsh about it, but I could understand, like you said, that, that kind of jilting change in the 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 writing and art style where it it kind of shifts tonally, and you're you, you basically are kind of wondering what. You know, what happened to my backup strip? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. Saturday Morning Fever, the new show from the Fire and Water Podcast Network celebrating the classic Saturday morning cartoons. Available on fireandwaterpodcast.com, iTunes, and Stitcher. Awesome. Well, I, I mean, I think this is going to conclude our Fan Holes Fright Fest 2 Electric Boogaloo theme that's been running through our Fan Holes podcasts this month. If you guys have enjoyed listening to Comics Motherfucker, do you read them? We hope you will check out some of our other spin-off shows. We've got Toku Thursdays, Transformers Tuesdays, Sentai Saturdays, Mobile Suit Mondays, Big in Japan, where we talk about anime, and of course the Fan Holes podcast proper. And I just want to use this opportunity to let Rob Kelly tell us if he has any upcoming projects, or you know, where can people find you, either on the you know the internet or or anything you you want to plug or you know kind of let people know if they're you know listening to this for the first time and, and want to know where to find you and your work. All my podcasts can be found in the same place, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. I do various shows there. There's some on comic books. There's a do show on uh, movies, which, of course, you've been nice enough to be on several times. I do a show about Bob Dylan. I do uh, just way too many shows over on that network. And I also write an ongoing column for 13thDimension.com called Real Retro Cinema, where I talk about an old movie that has some connection to comic books, whether there's an adaptation of it or it's based on a comic book, but it's it's some movie with a comic book connection, and that's an ongoing column over at 13thDimension.com. Cool. Great. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and until the next time, this is going to be Derek, Derek WC, signing off. Happy Halloween, everybody.
Um, my Siri thinks I'm talking to her. Um, 